Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, welcome folks to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And uh, yep, it's afternoon. This afternoon we have with us Eric Frisch, and I'm going to try to pronounce it again correctly. Copeland Steer Vols Lovell. That's right. Is that right? It is. Excellent. Good. Nice to have you with us this afternoon. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, so just to keep the theme of the show here, what's your morning beverage of choice to get started? I am a cold brew coffee person. I, about two years ago, um, got Invisalign braces, which means I can't drink hot coffee in the morning anymore. So I adopted cold brew as my drink of choice. Oh, nice. Wait, so you have the Invisalign on right now? I do. Nice. I I still need a couple more trays before I'm done, they tell me. Uh, You have beautiful straight teeth. I think my dentist told me last time I was there, you could use some Invisalign. The teeth move over time. So anyway, good, good for you. I never actually, it's funny. I, I don't think anyone in my family actually, maybe because they didn't do it as much back then. We had, none of us had braces. Both of my kids have had braces, but no, no one in my family, I was one of five boys, no braces. I did not have braces as a child either. Um, and so this is my first go around with it. Good stuff. Anyway, we're getting off on a, on a tangent here. We probably don't need to be on <laughs> But I like to have fun with this. Why not? Uh, so talk about uh, your practice, what kind of work you do. Yes, for uh, the last 21 plus years, I have spent my practice defending professionals, mostly in malpractice lawsuits, sometimes in regulatory types of things. Yep. The majority of those folks are in the healthcare profession, but I also do work for lawyers who are sued or have regulatory issues. And then a smaller part of my practice is spent doing general commercial defense liability work. Okay. So my dad would have loved you um, because he was a doctor and uh, occasionally people would go after him for medical malpractice. It is a thing and it's a uh, uh, something I've done for uh, my entire time at this law firm. Yeah. I mean, listen, I... It's almost hard to avoid, right? I mean, if something doesn't come out as you expect, or you know, whatever that expectation is, I mean, I can see the you're going to get in a lot of litigation. There's a lot of it. Yeah, the uh, the stats a couple years ago were that the average doctor could expect to be sued 2.3 times in their entire career. I don't know if that's changed markedly or not. Um, but that's the general thought is that most practitioners at some point are going to face a malpractice. Yeah. Interesting. And has that statistic gone up or stayed the same? Uh, not entirely sure. It's a, um, a, a, it's probably skewed a little bit right now because of the pandemic put um, a, a clamp down on a lot of this uh, litigation. So it's a little hard to get a read on it, but it's probably about the same um, in most states. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, does it, I mean, listen, doctors have big egos. I know because I lived with one and, uh, but I'm wondering if it has any impact on their 
profession, right? And, and being a little more cautious if you know that you stand a pretty good chance to be sued by somebody. It um, it kind of depends. Um, there are some um, specialties where you're going to be exposed no matter how careful you are. And we know that, for instance, surgery, radiology, and obstetrics are the highest number of cases. In other cases, people let their guard down a little bit because their specialty doesn't get sued very often. Yeah. Um, and so it's a little harder for them to look at the lawsuit history as sort of a, a deterrent or an education factor. But um, for the most part, uh, most professionals are aware of the litigation environment and take that into account when they're practicing. Yeah. So is uh, you're in the state of Georgia. Is there tort reform to provide some limits to that? So we, we had a tort reform package back in 2005 was the last time we attempted it. Um, a number of the statutes that they passed back then were declared unconstitutional for various reasons. And then there's some leftover parts. Um, there is nothing currently before the legislature that I'm aware of for a new tort reform package. Mm. So what's your biggest concern, though, when you're defending if there is no limit? Um, obviously, you're trying to protect against these big verdicts, right? Yes, and we've had an increasing number of very large verdicts in Georgia recently. Uh, in fact, there was one this week, a, a believe one of the highest medical malpractice wrongful death verdicts I'm aware of at mm. $75 million. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it, it's enough to keep us up at night when we're defending these cases. Yeah. So how do you manage that risk? What do you do to make sure that your case is rock solid and you're not going to get a $75 million judgment? We spend a lot of time working with our clients and our expert witnesses to understand the medicine, um, to understand the facts of the case, and to develop a plan about how we're going to explain it to 12 jurors um, virtually who are never going to have any, any experience with uh, a lot of the concepts we'll be talking about. So we spend a lot of time just rolling up our sleeves and working real hard to develop the best defense that we can. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes you're going to get a case that the defendant is in the wrong, right? I mean, you're going to do your best to defend them, but it's going to go against you. Yeah. That's true. And uh, so a unique part about professional liability cases is that for the insurance policies they have, most of them have a, a provision in there that in order to settle the case, the insurance company needs the written consent of the insured. Um, and so that puts the control in the hands of the professional as to whether they want to settle or not. We advise them of the risks and benefits, and uh, occasionally, even though we can't find an expert witness for somebody or they admit that they have done something wrong, we still have to go try the case. Um, and there are ways, sometimes we do admit that we violated the standard of care in some way, but we didn't cause the injury or the injury is not as severe as they say it is, and those sorts of things. Those are not frequent occurrences, but for the most part, it ultimately the decision lies with the professional as to whether they're going to settle the case before trial or not. Oh, I see. Okay. That well, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, if they feel like they're right, you're gonna push it as far as you can. You're gonna take it to trial. Yep. And you know, we are as trial lawyers, we we like to say, you know, we don't always 
pick our clients. It's their case. Um, we get up and we advocate the best we can for them with whatever we have to work with. Uh, I've had the unique pleasure of trying a case where um, uh, we were fairly certain our client did something wrong. We didn't have an expert witness. We didn't even have a um, all of the medical records that we needed. And we got kind of thrown into the fire at the last minute and went in there with uh, basically knowing we were going to lose the case the entire time. Yeah. It's actually a little bit of a liberating experience when you know you're going to lose. Uh, <laughs> So you just go in and you kind of you kind of freewheel it and have some fun with it because you're not as uptight about it as if everything's on the line. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, do you use uh, focus groups and mock trials to prepare? Uh, every chance we can. Um, okay. Uh, we like those types of um, jury research or opinion research exercises. Mm -hmm. A couple of different ways to do them. I've had cases where I've um, done it two, three, or four times before just to get an idea. Um, and sometimes the things we take to those exercises are different questions each time, and you're looking at different things. So, but we use that uh, whenever we can. Yeah. Okay. Good. Excellent. Yeah. What What are the kind of technology does the firm use to become better and more efficient? Yeah. So at at trial, um, we are moving in the direction of being almost paperless in our presentations. And you can imagine with uh, professional liability cases, tons of medical records and bills and things like this. And over time, um, we, in most cases, we use an outside vendor to run those things for us. But um, I've started doing it where I've done it from an iPad uh, using a, a program that we control. But the idea being is that, you know, you're, Ultimately, cases tend to come down to about 30, 40, maybe 100 key pages out of large volume of documents. You isolate those ones, and then you focus your presentation on those particular pages. And we find that the jurors respond really well when people use that kind of technology in the courtroom. Yeah, okay. So you're a trial attorney. So, I mean, is, it your, um, is that the goal to go to trial as much as you can? And I mean, how many, I mean, most things settle, right? So you're not going into the courtroom. Yeah, you know, it's that's an interesting question. As a trial lawyer, of course, you love going into the courtroom. Yeah. That's what you live for. Um, it's the preparation going into it that can be the hardest part of everything. Um, you know, it's it, cases do settle. Cases sometimes get disposed of on motions um, and, you um, but, you know, ultimately, as you know, when we're representing professionals, as we say, they have the ultimate control over whether the case settles. So we go and we try the cases that uh, where a resolution can't be reached for any reason, we'll go in and try it. Yeah. yeah. And Georgia, I know, is one of those states probably like where I am in Florida, where it didn't shut down that much, did it, during COVID? Uh, we had um, kind of varied. So we have 159 counties, and I'm pretty sure that they did it 159 different ways. <laughs> uh, so in Metro Atlanta, you know, there's five major metro counties. I think three or four of them really did shut down substantially, and a couple of them kind of in between a little bit. And even in our biggest county, it was sort of the one half was really shut down and one half was not as shut down as the other half. So we had a, we had a little bit of everything. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No, I, I understand completely what you're saying. It's kind of a mosaic. When people talk about fly, I always say it's like a mosaic really just depends on where you are. 
Yeah, definitely. The uh, outside the metro Atlanta area and the major, um, you know, city areas, the shutdown wasn't nearly as uh, as as significant to most folks as it was in the metro areas. Right. Are you a native Atlanta Atlanta person? I am not. I came up here for law school. Um, I grew up mostly in South Florida by way of uh, the North, um, but I've been in Atlanta over half my life at this point. Oh, you grew up in South Florida? Yeah. Oh, okay. Where? Uh, in uh, Boynton Beach, Lake Worth area. Ah, okay. I live in Delray Beach. Excellent. That's my hometown. Went to Santa Lucia's High School. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not from here. In fact, the, the business uh, that I'm part of now is was started in Boynton Beach, but I grew up in Boston. I'm a, I'm a Bostonian, slid down the East Coast. So, okay, good stuff. Um, so how did you get started? Tell me, talk about your journey to become a lawyer. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I um, When I was in high school, I was always had a strong interest in politics and uh, those sorts of things. Got to college, um, got into political science, kind of thought a little bit about going into politics or political campaigning as a as a career, didn't really see that clear of a pathway to doing that professionally and thought I would take the bar, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the law school entrance exams, mm -hmm. decent enough on it that uh, I was able to get into Emory Law School. And uh, that sort of set me on my path. And it wasn't really until after I graduated from law school that I kind of solidified what I wanted to do as a lawyer. Yeah. How'd you make the decision to be on defense professional liability? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. You 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 go into law school and you think you're going to do this or you think you're going to do that. And you take all these different classes. I took some um criminal law classes. I took a lot of business classes involving antitrust and intellectual property and things, thinking I wanted to do either white collar crime or something like that. Yeah. Got out. It was sort of a difficult time um, for hiring lawyers when I graduated. So I kind of picked up whatever job I could. Originally, for the first five years of my practice, I actually um, represented people who were suing others. And I had a partner who was doing medical malpractice plaintiff's work. Um, as you get a little bit older in your career and uh, plaintiff's work is fun, but it's also sort of boom or bust. And I needed a little bit more steady employment. So my partner at the time kind of put me in touch with um, uh, the former name partner of this firm who was known in Georgia as having tried probably as many cases as anybody else in the state at that point. And I said I wanted to go learn from him and try the cases against the best lawyers in the state. And that's how I got involved doing defense. I, I kind of fell in love with it. Um, I didn't know anything about medicine. I don't come from a family of doctors or anything like that. Um, I saw it as kind of learning a new language. Um, yeah. And so decided to, to get into the medical malpractice and found that I really liked it. Interesting. I oh, see so you want Emory is, I mean, I always think of Emory for like uh, epidemiology, right? Strong medical. Very strong medical yeah. uh, school over there. Yeah. And uh, the law school is um, always highly rated. Um, it was, I actually chose Emory and Atlanta because I wanted to graduate when the Olympics 
were in town in 1996 and felt it would be a fun, interesting place to be, you know, the biggest city in the South. And I always wanted to live in a city. And so that's how I ended up choosing it, was fortunate enough to go to, to, go to Emory. Oh, excellent. That's an interesting uh, selection process. <laughs> Very much so. But when, you know, when you're young and you're looking around, but you're, you're looking at where am I going to live and where am I going to practice? And, um, you know, if I couldn't get to New York or a big city or something like that up in the north, um, I, you know, what's the next biggest city in the in the south? Well, it was it was Atlanta and it was growing and changing rapidly at the time and seemed like a good opportunity. And a lot of people I went to University of Florida for undergrad and a lot of people were moving up to Atlanta. And so it seemed like the place to go yeah. if you're going to do that. And that's, it turned out to be a very, you know, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's quite a big growing, interesting city, Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it has at least tripled in size since I moved up here. Uh, uh yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun transition for the city and watching it grow and and morph over the years and i'm happy to be part of that community do you live in the city or in the suburbs i live in the city um so the old brave stadium the old olympic stadium turner field is in a neighborhood called grant park and i'm about three blocks from the entrance to the old stadium. oh nice very nice i mean i've only been to atlanta a couple of times i remember one time going there on a, on a business trip and I flew into the airport. I never even touched the ground. I took the train to Buckhead. I got out. I was in the building, had the meeting, and went back. And yeah, that's there's a lot of that, you know. But uh, um, yeah, we're 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 fortunate in that regard to have the busiest airport going. And oh, that yeah. was another attraction for the city was you know having a nice airport that can get you anywhere you know quickly without a lot of connections is also a nice perk. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Anyone else in your family, attorneys, or you're the first one? Nope, I'm the only one. I have an uncle who's a plaintiff's lawyer, um, retired plaintiff's lawyer down in South Florida, but um, for my immediate family, I'm the only one. Got it, got it, got it. Interesting. Um, so what was I going to ask you? Uh, you must work on some interesting things. Is there any, like, one memorable case that you can talk about that you that you worked on? Sure. There, there's always memorable cases and they mean uh, different things in, in different contexts. The one memorable case was the first case I ever got to go try. It was a uh, we were on the plaintiff's side. And it was a race discrimination case in the northern district of Georgia. We represented, um, I believe it was eight out of multiple members of a of a band from North Atlanta High School in Atlanta um, who stopped at a Waffle House late in the evening in Commerce, Georgia on their way back from a football game. And um, they were all African-American. There was a white cook who used racial slurs and kicked them out of the out of the um, Waffle House. Yeah. And um, we took it to trial on a race discrimination claim and got a sizable verdict that was pretty big at the time. And uh, it, it was fun, not just because it was my first trial. It's the only trial I've done something like that in. Um, and then there's been other trials along the way that have been um, very fun and memorable. The one I was mentioning where we didn't have any expert witnesses or any of those other things was an interesting experience for the partner and I who tried it at the time. We, we 
um, sort of stories that could fill up uh, an entire podcast in and of itself. From that, yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually just uh, I'm reading uh, Jess Mercy at Brian Stevenson right now. Do you know that book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do not. But he he talks about well, he's in Atlanta, but he he spends time in Alabama and doing uh, defending death row. Uh, clients and it's it's interesting but it's all about what you basically what you were describing there that uh discrimination yeah you know the the thing about the the trial cases is um you know there's always an excitement when you're doing it and you're you're trying to figure out how you're going to explain to a jury what can oftentimes be a terribly complicated or disputed situation and in the context of professional liabilities particularly healthcare, you're, you have to speak plain old English to folks and you can't talk over them and you can't talk down to them and you got to talk to them and educate them on yep. sometimes what are some very difficult and complicated um, medical subjects, even for clinicians and for physicians to, to sort through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I, and I've heard that many, many times. I mean, and, and that, it's like that in any business, honestly, you have to take complex concepts and simplify them so people can understand them that aren't, don't spend their whole life in that uh, ecosystem right indeed indeed yeah yeah so i mean that 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 is a real skill and a, and a real trick so i mean would you say that's one of the uh skills that makes someone successful more successful than others uh, i i think so um you know the challenge in the courtroom um is really learning how to communicate um, with folks, you know, get the feel for them. I mean, uh, you know, we tell folks all the time, sometimes we're, we're looking at the jury constantly to see, yeah. you know, are they falling asleep on us? Is it time for us to move on? Is it, you know, are they getting it? Do we need to explain something more? It's a lot about reading body language and, and those sorts of things. And especially with modern jurors who are used to getting answers very quickly, from devices and the internet and those sorts of things, you know, how do we make sure that we get across to them what we need to? Because oftentimes we have legal things we have to do, even though they sound funny when we're in the courtroom asking somebody where they went to college, you know, as an expert witness. But, um, you know, we have to do those things for legal reasons, but then getting on to the concepts. But yeah, you know, it's it's uh, reading the room and understanding how your audience is receiving the messages is a critical skill set. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I would imagine. Um, so just uh, you've been at it for a while. Um, what would you say to a young lawyer who is thinking about becoming a lawyer? Um, think about it long and hard. It's not an easy profession. Um, and it's an intense profession and it is a profession and get into it for the right reasons. Um, you have to want to be a lawyer. Law school's not fun. I didn't enjoy it. I don't know too many people who did. And it's an expensive proposition. You know, it's, it's a grad school, but get into it because you want to do the job. And being a lawyer is fun and can be very rewarding but it's not something to take casually. Uh, don't do it just because you don't have anything else to do. You gotta, you gotta want to be in this profession because it's very intense, and um, you know it has a lot of responsibility. I mean, every lawyer is advising a client, and that is a you know you're a fiduciary. You owe them certain duties and 
those sorts of things. And so it, it comes with it a lot of responsibility. So it's not something to take lightly, but it can be very rewarding if you appreciate those challenges. Good. Excellent. Good. Good stuff. Um, so just final words here. Um, how do you want to leave it with people if they want to know more about what you do and best way to get in touch with you? Sure. That's a good question. Um, uh, our our website, it's uh, csbl.law. That's uh, Charlie, uh, Sam, Victor, uh, Lima, dot, uh, L-A-W, law. Or Copeland, Steer, Vols, Lovell. Yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> and uh, But that's the best way to learn a little bit about it. You can go through um, uh, just our individual partners in, on there or our practice groups to find out a little bit more about it. Um, I do run a um, healthcare litigation blog on LinkedIn, oh, nice. where we uh, I post about recent cases in Georgia that come out, appellate decisions, and those sorts of things. And it's a it's a fun way to keep up with the legal developments. It's mostly just Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Um, but if anyone's interested in how the um, appellate courts view these types of cases, we try to summarize those and break them down for folks. Oh, excellent. Good stuff. All right. Well, listen, this has been a really enjoyable to learn about more about what you do. Um, Eric Frisch of, um, and I'm going to read it again, Copeland Steer, Vaz Lovell. How was yes. that? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is oh, been yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. And again, this, this, is a, this show is sponsored by Motion Track with a C, and it is a legal tech platform that helps people like yourself with litigation. Um, it's a digital platform to uh, get insights for mediation and trials. Excellent. Thanks, thanks again, Eric. Thank you.